Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. I invite you to join me in 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. I want to begin reading in verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. A well-known geology professor, when asked by a student one day what the age of a fossil was, he said with considerable authority that it was two million and three years old. And the student said, well, how can you be so precise? He said, well, another group had visited this same site three years earlier, and we were told that this fossil was two million years old. (laughs) We are living in a day of uncertainty. That goes without saying. We have no idea what's going to happen next. The only certainty I can assure you have is we don't have very good leadership in the nation. Not all of them, just most of them. The fact is, it's impossible to be certain about anything anymore. Not very much anyway. I heard about a woman who came out of the beauty salon and she was met by her neighbor. And her neighbor said, well, Sally, what in the world have you done with your hair? It looks just like a wig. She said, it is a wig. And her neighbor said, well, you could have fooled me. There are some things we can be certain of today. I know Benjamin Franklin is the one that is credited with saying there's nothing certain but death and taxes. But you know, there are some other certain things. John has used the word know, K-N-O-W, 39 times in this letter. We can be certain about some things. Many people today recognize that there was a Jesus and that he was human, but they failed to accept his deity. 
They're like the young woman who was engaged to Mozart before he became famous. But she was impressed by more handsome men. She became disenchanted with Mozart because he was so short. So she gave him up for someone tall and handsome. And when the world began to praise Mozart for his outstanding musical accomplishments, she regretted her decision. And she said, I knew nothing of the greatness of his genius. I only saw him as a little man. Well, a lot of the world responds to the baby Jesus in the manger at Christmas time, and they give lip service to him, but that's all. They don't really think about Jesus and who he is and how he is the only way to salvation. But soon he's forgotten. Well, skeptics will talk to Christians and they will say something like this. They think that Christianity is a psychological phenomenon. And they may say something like this, well, I'm glad that it works for you. If you tell them that Jesus has changed your life and they will say, well, I'm glad that that works for you, but it doesn't prove that Christianity is true because there are other religions that have changed people's lives also, or at least they claim to be. So if you want to look at a changed life, there's plenty of evidence that Christianity is not the only way for your life to be changed. So how do you answer that argument? Now, there is value in subjective arguments. What I mean is that that you you know yourself that you've received Christ as your Savior, and subjectively from inside you know. But John has been addressing all throughout this letter the matter of authentic Christianity, And he repeatedly shows that authentic Christians believe the truth about Jesus, they obey God's commandments, and they love one another. And even when he began this letter, he began with an objective statement. Let me read it to you. First three verses of 1 John. This is the old disciple, old apostle speaking What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus. Jesus Christ. Now, John wasn't relying or relaying some inner subjective vision or philosophy. He was telling of his objective experience with Jesus Christ. I've seen him. Now, he's speaking to second and third generation Christians who had not, had not seen Jesus. And he tells of his objective experience and who Jesus was. A well-known Bible teacher by the name of Dr. Joseph Conrad startled his audience at Mount Hermon Conference Center one summer by saying something like this. He said, dear friends, I want you to know at the very beginning of my ministry that I am not dogmatic about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. I am not dogmatic about the bodily resurrection of Christ, nor am I at all dogmatic about the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at this point in this conservative group, you could hear this collective gasp. But with great intensity, he said, no, I'm not dogmatic. I am bulldogmatic. 
And there's something that note here of intensity when John is almost bulldogmatic about what he's going to tell you or what he's telling us about Jesus Christ. I mentioned earlier we live in a society where people don't think there's anything certain anymore, that things are tentative. We're told that we cannot know anything for sure. That there's no absolute truth. Unfortunately, that's permeated a lot of churches where pulpits will declare that you can't believe anything for certain. According to Philippians Wiley, he said, we Americans are rapidly becoming a nothing people, a generation of zeros. Because we do not believe anything. We do not think anything can be believed. This is the fundamental philosophy of the age in which we live. And you know as well as I do, everybody calls it fake news. But the Christian faith rests upon facts, not on feelings. Our faith is based on reasonable. It's a reasonable faith. It's not a shot in the dark. And John declares this, especially as he's coming to the end of this letter, he becomes even more dogmatic about who Jesus is. And what I want you to leave with today is the fact that you're not believing in something you're hoping for. You're believing in something you know to be true because God is the one who testified about it. So first, John mentions the confirmations for believing in Christ. Now, I want you to listen carefully. I want you to know there's a textual problem here. There's not an error in the scripture. But I will tell you that in the King James Version and the New King James Version, in verse 7, look at verse 7, it says, For there are three that bear witness. Now, from there on in heaven all the way down to verse 8 on earth. That is, an, that is not in the earliest manuscripts. In fact, that doesn't show up in a manuscript until the 15th century. And it comes from a Latin manuscript in the margin back in the 5th century. Now, does that mean it's wrong? No. But what I want you to know, understand is, here's the way it really reads in the earliest text that we have in the Greek. Verse 7, for there are three that bear witness. And then you drop down to verse 8. The spirit the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. If you have a, an English Standard Version or a New International Version or New American Standard, some of those, it probably already either put that out in the margin or, or put it aside. Now, does that mean there's an error in the Scripture? No. It means that they took a manuscript when they were translating these and, and included it. But that's not what I want you to focus on. I want you to remember that the Gnostics were saying that Jesus was merely a man or, or he didn't become a man or one of the combinations of the two. But especially during this time, there was a, a Gnostic teacher by the name of Serenthus. And Serenthus said that Jesus was merely a man, but that at the baptism of John, that the Christ came upon him. And he fulfilled his earthly ministry and just before he died, that the Christ, the deity part of him, went back. 
Now, we know that's not true because Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. But what I want you to see is that now John really calls in like a courtroom. He said, I'm going to call in the three witnesses of the deity of Christ. And not only that, it's the three witnesses from God himself and that God himself also declares. But what are these three witnesses? He says, first, the water in verse six. Jesus came by water and blood. Now, I'm going to give you some technical stuff here, but I want you to know the truth. This is the most controversial passage in 1 John because there's a lot of people that interpret this in different ways. I'm going to tell you a few of those and I'm going to tell you the right one or the one I believe, okay? Some say that the blood and water refer to baptism and communion. It's unlikely for two reasons. First, while water may well stand or be a symbol of baptism, blood would be an unusual symbol for communion. And John would likely omit the reference to, he would, he would unlikely omit the references to Christ's body and blood. And second, John says that Jesus came by water and blood, which points to his past historical coming and not something that's going on now. So I don't hold to that one. Then there are some that say blood and water refers to that which flowed from the side of Jesus on the cross. If you remember in John 19, 34 and 35, when the soldiers came to break the legs of those hanging on the cross, Jesus was already dead. And so they put a spear in his side. And the gospel of John tells us that water and blood or blood and water flowed. And there are a lot of people that believe this. And I don't have a, necessarily have a problem with that, but I don't think it fits the context. I don't think that's what John is emphasizing right here when he's trying to defend who Jesus Christ is. And, and of course, John would have remembered that, but I don't believe that's the right interpretation. And I have friends that disagree with me. Then there, a third approach is what John Calvin and Spurgeon seems to have followed. He viewed the terms as referring to the Old Testament rites of purification and the blood sacrifice, which Jesus fulfilled in his earthly ministry. And that is true that Jesus fulfilled that, but it's a secondary meaning or a secondary uh, thought. It's not the primary meaning here. So what does this mean? He, remember who he's talking to and, and what he's defending. I believe the water refers to the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan when the father spoke from heaven and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And at the same time, the spirit descended like a dove and rested upon him. And it was the father's testimony of his son at the beginning of his earthly ministry. It also fits the historical context of what we know that John is defending. The Serenthian Gnostics taught that Jesus was just a man until the Christ came upon him and departed before his death. And these false teachers could not conceive how a divine savior could have died on the cross. But to refute, to refute this serious heresy, John shows that Jesus was the Christ, God's anointed before his baptism. 
and that he was still the Messiah, the Savior, after his death on the cross. And since the Gnostics agreed that Jesus was the Christ at his baptism, John adds, not with water only, but with water and the blood to say he was Christ during the crucifixion. The water of baptism is a symbol of cleansing. It doesn't cleanse you. You understand that? It's a symbol of cleansing. And for the sin-defiled members of the human race, it was a symbolic representation of what God did through Jesus Christ when a sinner comes to the Lord. There's a forgiveness of sins, a cleansing. It shows, it looks like, the, obviously, the burial and resurrection of Christ, but it's symbolic of what's happened in your life. You have died to your sins. You have been cleansed in Jesus Christ. You've been raised to walk in a new life. It's a symbol. It doesn't save you. It's not optional. <laughs> it's the first act of obedience to, ref, to uh, identify with Jesus. But that's why John had such a hard time when Jesus came to him and, he, and, and John said, are you coming to be baptized by me? I ought to be baptized of you. And you remember Jesus said, allow it to be so for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, Matthew three fifteen. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm going to take the sin of mankind and I'm going to demonstrate, I'm going to be representing this baptism. I, I don't need to be baptized because I need cleansing in my life. I'm doing it to represent mankind. And the Father's voice made it clear there wasn't any sin with Jesus. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. But he was showing these Gnostic heretics that he was the Messiah, he was God's son long before he was baptized by John. The second is the blood. There are 460 direct references to blood in the Bible. And if you count related concepts such as altar and sacrifice and offering and atonement, there's many more than that references. But God spoke to Jesus from heaven and said, I have both glorified my name and will glorify it again in John 12, 28. Furthermore, the Father manifested in miraculous power when Jesus died on the cross. What happened? Supernatural darkness. There was an earthquake. The curtain in front of the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom. And no wonder the centurion cried out, truly this was the Son of God, Matthew 27. And then the third witness is the Spirit. The Spirit was given to bear witness to Christ in John 15, 26. We can trust the Spirit's witness because he is the Spirit of truth. John already said, the Spirit will teach you all things. He is the Spirit of truth. How many of you were present at the baptism of Jesus? No one. Or the crucifixion. But the Holy Spirit was present. We're told in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. If you look back in chapter 3, verse 24, 
Well, I didn't need to turn the page. Now, he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. Look at verse 13 of chapter 4. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. You see, John is using a subjective and objective argument about who Jesus is. And in verse 9 of chapter 5, it says, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which he has testified. The word testified is perfect tense indicating the validity of the historical witness of Christ that God made, these three things agree as one, it says in verse 9 or verse 10. No, verse 8. These three agree as one. What is he saying? That was the Jewish law. If you have the witness of men, if you can accept the testimony of three men, you can accept the testimony of God through the blood, the water, and the Spirit. The fact that he was there every day, we trust the testimony of fallen man. You can't live life without trusting people. Have you ever thought about it? You deposit money in a bank, who are you trusting? You buy food at the grocery store, you take an aspirin for a headache, you do many things in your daily life that you trust the witness of men. Why do you take an aspirin? Why do you take ibuprofen or Tylenol, whatever it is? Because you've been told it will help you. You're trusting somebody. And here he's saying, if you can trust man every day, you can definitely trust God in his witness about who Jesus is. Romans 8, 16 says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. John's point is God's threefold witness to his son. The spirit, the water, and the blood is trustworthy. In a court of law, the truth is established when numerous witnesses say the same thing and when those witnesses are shown to have a credible character. John shows us that the three witnesses all agree, and they're not just the testimony of man, they're the testimony of God. And if you, can't tr- if you can trust men, why can't you trust God? Man is fallible, man is fallen, God is perfect. And if a person does not believe God, John's very, very clear. He says, you make God out to be a liar. You see, the one sin, unpardonable sin, can't be forgiven, is denying Jesus Christ. Because God said, I've put it out there, he's true, if you deny him, you can't be forgiven. Obviously, you have until you die to accept him, but unbelief is not a misfortune. It's a sin to be deplored. The sinfulness lies in the fact that it contradicts the word of God. When a person says, I don't believe in Jesus, you're calling God a liar. And he won't be forgiven. 
I'm not talking about one time. I'm talking about when you die, if you don't have Jesus Christ, it's over. The confirmation of believing in Jesus. We believe in him, don't we? Why? Because our mom and dad's told us, yeah, probably, partly. Some of you grew up in a Christian home like me. But we believe it because God said it. John shows then the consequences of believing in Christ. What are the consequences? What, do, what, are, the, what are the blessings? Two things. And I've already basically alluded to them. First of all, we have an inner witness. Verse 13 of chapter 4. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Have you ever had anybody say, I'm just not sure I'm a Christian? All of us have thought that at times. Now listen. Who are we believing? If you're believing in your own merit and you're believing in your own works and your own feelings, you're not ever going to be sure. But if you're believing in God and what he said and you have done what he said, then what are you worried about? Because he's the one we trust, not ourselves. When you believe the testimony about Christ, it's because God has changed your heart. Christianity is not primarily psychologically psychological it's based on the fact of who Jesus is and the resurrection of Christ and the fact that there are facts or facts authenticating that you you once were a a god hater maybe not in that strong of a term but you didn't know god but now that you have committed your life and received Christ as your Savior, you have any trouble believing that anymore? Why? Because he's put his spirit in you. One of the reasons you can't enjoy sin like you used to, because his spirit in you is grieved and his spirit tells you this isn't what God wants. This isn't who you are. Amen? He bears witness with our spirit. He gives us life. But, you know, even when the preacher's not around, you still know when something's wrong, don't you? <laughs> it's always amazing when I walk up. It's like I am the representative of God, and y'all are, God's going to find out if I see you do it. <laughs> I've got news for you. Holy Spirit lives in us. He's the one that lets us know. But John also states that we have eternal life. 
You have that now. Eternal life is an undeserved gift. It's found in Jesus Christ. It's a present possession. Eternal life is God's gift. Now, I'm talking about it's not something you gain through good works or your efforts. It does not require some special secret knowledge that the heretics taught. Like any gift, you must know about it. In this case, God has testified about it. You must receive it. You don't earn it. It's not a gift if you earn it or you can buy it. God gives you eternal life. Now, let me turn that around a little bit. God's gift is eternal life. It's not only his gift. Nothing could be a greater gift because of our sins. We were spiritually dead and separated, alienated from the life of God. But Jesus promised that if we believe in him, even when we die, that everyone who lives and believes in him will never die, John eleven twenty five 25 tells us that. In other words, physical death, these bodies are going to die, will not rob us of eternal life. In fact, all death does is run an escort service home. Jesus Christ is everything, is what this says. If you have him, you have eternal life. If you don't have him, you do not have life. As someone said, Christianity is Christ. Christianity. All that God offers us, he offers in Jesus Christ. He is the only sure, solid foundation for your faith. The most important question in the world is the one that Jesus asked his disciples. Who do you say that I am? Peter's answer, inspired by God, is the only correct one. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. I know I'm preaching to the choir. You got to be saved to come at eight o'clock. <laughs> Don't let anybody ever make you doubt. Because John also states the confidence from believing in Christ. Verse 13 these things represents this whole letter. These things have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. And the rest of that verse was added later. Later manuscript. That you may know that you have eternal life. You know, John gives, tells us about a no-so religion. Not a hope so or feel so. I, I know so. I know I'm saved. Not by feeling but by trust and faith in Jesus Christ, whom God said is the only way to be saved. If your faith is in Christ, then you have the inner witness of his spirit that you're a child of God. You have the evidence in your life that he's changed your heart. You believe the truth about Jesus. You obey God's commands. You love God. John's gospel. Now listen to this. John's gospel. John 20, verse 31, was written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So the gospel of John was written for unbelievers. And a lot of times when we want people, they say, I want to read the Bible, I said, start in the gospel of John. Because it's for unbelievers to tell you about who Jesus is. 
But this letter, according to verse 13, was written to believers. I wrote these things that you might know that you have eternal life. During the first part of the construction of the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, there were no safety devices. 23 men fell to their death. So for the last part of the project, they put up a net that cost $100,000. In those days, that was even more money than it is now. And at least 10 men fell in it and were saved. But an interesting sideline is the fact that 25% more work was accomplished when men knew that they were safe while they were working. Christians, the world's in a mess. And it's getting worse by the day. And we're looking for the return of Jesus. Yeah, I know, I know, I, I, I pay the same price that you do for everything. And I don't have any confidence in the direction we're headed. But I know who I know as my Savior. And that I'm his child. And it doesn't mean I don't have concerns. It doesn't even mean I don't worry every now and then. But I can live my life with confidence, knowing that it's just a matter of time till Jesus comes again. And I can have a peace in the midst of all the conflict and in the midst of all the turmoil. I know who's holding on to me. I'm not holding on to him. He's holding on to me. Jesus said, I've come to give you life. We have freedom and assurance. We have confidence, not an arrogance, but a confidence that when the Lord returns or when I die, I'm going to be home with him. Not because of one thing that I've done. <laughs> it's all by his grace and mercy. Do you believe in Jesus? He's the only way to be saved. And churches don't, don't lift up Jesus Christ today are not churches. They're just clubs. Because you and I don't have any hope apart from Jesus Christ. If you don't know him, if you're watching online, if you see this on television one day, if you don't know him, don't take my word for it. Read the Bible for yourself. And I can stand up, I can, I can see this old apostle standing up and saying, I don't care what you're being told today. I know what I saw, I know what I experienced. I know who Jesus Christ is. I saw him after his resurrection. I saw him ascend into heaven. I know he's coming back. 
Don't you let anybody ever tell you that Jesus Christ is anything but the Savior of the world. And only in him can you be saved. Would you bow your heads with me? If you don't know Christ, you can know him today. Asking God to forgive you of your sin. Believing that Jesus died and rose again for your sin. And trusting your life with him. God, you've made it as clear as day that Jesus is the only way. I pray that you'd open people's eyes to see it. You told us in your word in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 that the God of this age has blinded the minds of those lest they believe and see the the light of the gospel. I, I pray it opened eyes for them to see who Jesus is. And then reveal our hearts to know that he's there in our life. I pray that people would come to you. I pray for those that need a church, for those who need to be baptized. Not to be saved, but because they've been saved. Lord, we love you. We thank you for salvation. Thank you for living in us. Thank you for your spirit bearing witness in our spirit. Thank you for salvation in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.